UNFTR. Turn a knob. Push a button. Twist a dial. Voices and music wing their way around the world with the speed of light. The miracle of radio is accepted today as commonplace. Yesterday's most fanciful dreams are now everyday realities. On a scale of 1 to 10, with the 10 being the most quenchable and actionable episode we've ever done, this will come in around a 0.5. Thought I would save you some time in advance unless you're in the mood to shout at the rain with me for the next 45 minutes or so. The subject today is communications, more specifically the Federal Communications Commission and the death of the Fairness Doctrine. We're going to return to the subject of the FCC in a couple of weeks to drill into other things the FCC has killed, like competition and net neutrality. But in order to lay the groundwork for understanding communication, media, and information in the United States, it's critical to explain the rise and fall of the Fairness Doctrine. When all the sections are complete, we'll piece them together in a singular masterpiece, Manny Faces style. This has been long in the works, and if you're still here and decided to take the leap with me, you'll understand why this is a wholly unsatisfying journey. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of meat on the bone. I told you to stop saying that. Right. Sorry. There's a lot to unpack. Is there a more overused word than unpack? Oh, my God. Leave her out of this. Okay, none of this is helping. All right, let me try to set this up the right way. The subject of communications is rife with tension. There are very few straightforward measures that we can pursue to improve the state of the media. It's also difficult to narrow the scope of a discussion around media, information, communications, free speech, journalism, commentary, and what constitutes the public square in today's society. So this is going to be one part mechanics and one part philosophy. I'm going to attempt to distill the mechanics of the broader communications industry into something digestible, but only to set the table for a larger discussion that involves a bunch of free and intangible stuff. Free speech, free enterprise, free markets, fairness, innovation, neutrality. And, of course, there's an economic underpinning to all of it that involves the Chicago School of Economics that we'll get to in the follow-up. What? You found a way to work Milton Friedman into an episode? What an unexpected development. Actually, funny guy, it's Ronald Coase, so there. Anyway, at the center of it all sits a commission that is either the least or most powerful agent in an industry that ranges from amateur ham radio to the internet and everything in between. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC. Now, the broad scope of communication channels under its purview make it arguably one of the most influential commissions that you'll never think about. On the other hand, its historical refusal to apply any of its congressionally authorized power is itself an indication of how uninfluential it has always been. This is a strange story that will find conservatives aligning with progressives, libertarians aligning with socialists, dogs living with cats, and any other unholy alliance you can imagine thus speaking to the underlying tensions. Because at the root of this discussion, there's a recurring theme that will make thinking people all along the political spectrum question their belief systems when it comes to the media. Can you guess what it is? Is it bigger than a bread box? Uh, can I buy a vowel? What is anti-disestablishmentarianism? What the fuck did you just say? No, it's the First Amendment. So let's get to it. U to the N to the FTR. Unfucking the Republic, meeting people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Could have made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with the fuckers around the globe. And Brittany brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. Unfuckers, unconnuckers, you're a fuckers 99. Dang. Unfuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, yo fuck Milton Friedman. Friedman. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. What is the FCC and why should we give a shit? Let's start by pulling the straight dope from their website. 
Quote, the Federal Communications Commission regulates interstate and international communications by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. An independent U.S. government agency overseen by Congress, the Commission is the federal agency responsible for implementing and enforcing America's communications law and regulations. End quote. Boring! Okay. So they oversee all things communications where Spectrum is concerned. Radio, TV, satellite, and hmm, cable. Hold that thought. And they're responsible for enforcing regulations. Can't wait to hear what those are. Notice they hold no responsibility where print media is concerned. Quick diversion here. Remember that many of the framers of the Constitution were in publishing or held tremendous sway over publishers in the colonies. Press freedom, as contemplated at America's founding, was essentially related to newspapers and pamphlets. Freedom of speech extended to the public square. How far could one's voice carry? How many copies could you print? So there was never a public agency responsible for monitoring print in the way that the FCC exists to regulate, monitor, or enforce regulations in the broadcast media. Now, sure, there are libel laws, but court matters versus regulatory oversight are not the same. In terms of their initiatives, or the things they claim as priorities, here's what they have to say. Promoting competition, innovation, and investment in broadband services and facilities. Supporting the nation's economy by ensuring an appropriate competitive framework for the unfolding of the communications revolution. Encouraging the highest and best use of spectrum domestically and internationally. Revising media regulations so that new technologies flourish alongside diversity and localism. Providing leadership in strengthening the defense of the nation's communications infrastructure. Now, we've seen this show before. Listen closely to the language. Promoting competition. Supporting the economy. Encouraging best use. Revising regulations so technology flourishes. Strengthening the defense of infrastructure. Blah, 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 blah. Now, there are a few tangible things that we can point to. One is digital discrimination. We spoke about this in our Economics of Racism episode, and it's important. But it's also one of those problems that just never had to be, and I have a huge problem with the way they're going about fixing it. Anyway, this is essentially about closing the broadband divide and ensuring that everyone has access to reliable internet because it's so much a part of our daily lives from education and employment to consumerism, if you want to be cynical. Even telehealth. People had been yelling about the digital divide for years, but the pandemic finally exposed it for the fatal societal flaw it is. But again, that's for part two. Closing the divide and ending digital discrimination is all well and good, and we can applaud this even if I dismantle the why and how of it later. Just about the only other visible thing that might be of interest to people is that the FCC is the one working to limit robocalls and caller ID spoofing. How's that working out for you? Exactly. So those are some textbook talking points from the modern-day FCC, for most of its existence from the late 1920s as an idea on the board to formal establishment in 1934, the FCC guarded the henhouse of broadcast information like a nun in Catholic school. A threat here, slap on the wrist there, but no real punishments. Oh, then maybe you should clarify the kind of Catholic school you're talking about. Oh, good point. So I'm talking about the white America Catholic schools with head penguins that ruled through fear but still sent kids home to their parents every night, as opposed to the ones that operated illegal native child trafficking schools for 150 years in the United States and Canada, stealing native children from their parents in middle-of-the-night raids, shipping them to live in Catholic residential schools, and murdering tens of thousands of children who were then buried in mass unmarked graves. So, not like that. Right, not like that. For most broadcasters, it's this nebulous, bureaucratic entity that kind of hangs over radio and television stations like a wet blanket fun killer. Clarify the situation for him, please. Page 108, paragraph 3. No jokes dealing with flatulence, excretion, urination, ejaculation, or other bodily functions. Also, no paragraph 2. No use of the so-called seven dirty words. These are cocksucker, motherfucker, fuck shit, cunt, cock, and pussy. We'll talk about why the FCC originally came into existence in a moment, because it actually had nothing to do with content or regulating speech over the airwaves, initially. But let's continue defining the role of the FCC historically, as told by perhaps one of the most principled commissioners that ever served as the head of the FCC, Newton Minow. 
A couple of things have changed since this video from 1963, for example, the structure of the committees and the number of commissioners, but on balance, here's the FCC in a nutshell. My name is Newton N. Minow. I'm the chairman of that commission, commonly known by its initials, the FCC. Ours is an independent federal regulatory agency. Like members of the cabinet, we are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. However, unlike cabinet members, we serve definite terms of seven years. We are a bipartisan agency. We have four members of one party and three of another. And our authority and functions stem from the provisions of the Communications Act of 1934 and its amendments. In that act, Congress decided that all station operators be licensed and identified. Their frequencies, their licenses, their renewals of license all must be determined under a standard which has become a familiar phrase, the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Minow was actually one of the good guys to the extent that anyone ever cared what an FCC commissioner had to say about anything. And hopefully after this episode, you will a little bit. Now, at the end of his introduction, he mentions the FCC's, quote, standard, which is the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Pretty well-meaning words, if not completely innocuous. It's one of those throwaway lines that really doesn't tell you anything about the mission, who it serves, what it regulates, or anything really about its reason for being. Who determines what is in the public interest? How exactly does it ensure convenience, and what does that even mean? How does that square with necessity? Necessary to whom? for what? One of the principal sources for a chunk of this episode is an old book published in 1978 called The Fairness Doctrine and the Media by Stephen J. Simmons. The Fairness Doctrine is an essential part of today's equation and squarely under the jurisdiction of the FCC, or it was. More than anything the FCC has ever done, said, regulated, or been involved with, the Fairness Doctrine strikes at the heart of their identity, or lack thereof. Actually, Minow wrote the foreword for the book and speaks directly to the vague phrase he himself uttered 15 years prior as commissioner. In it, he briefly addresses the origin of the Fairness Doctrine, and don't worry, we'll get deep into it to define and unfuck the whole thing, insinuating the authors really had no frame of reference when they crafted it in the 1930s because the broadcast spectrum was so new. Here he is, quote, Terminology and thinking had to be borrowed from entirely different industries and technologies. Senator Clarence Dill, principal sponsor of the Communications Act, once told me that he had borrowed the language for the FCC's standard of public interest, convenience, and necessity from the provisions of public utility laws. Yet the Communications Act states explicitly that broadcasting is not a public utility, end quote. These are really important points, and so believe it or not, in that little statement, there is a ton of information. UNFTR is also sponsored by our unfucking overcaffeinated members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Gott, Eric Wagner 101, David M.J., Corey S., Cindy S., Brian, Awesome A., Ahsoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 2. To be fair, it was never really a doctrine. Yeah, I know all about the FCC. <laughs> We'll clean up all your talking in a manner such as this. They will make you take a tinkle when you want to take a piss. And they'll make you call fellatio a trouser-friendly kiss. Here's the plain situation. There's no negotiation with the fellas at the freaking FCC. Okay, so the doctrine. Progressives have agitated for its reinstatement despite the clear challenge it presents to the First Amendment. Conservatives ultimately did away with it under the claim that it did indeed infringe upon the First Amendment, though they really did it to allow advertisers to say and do whatever the fuck they wanted on broadcast airwaves and to clear the way for conservative programming that didn't have to offer equal time. Libertarians just fucking hate everybody. Regardless of where you fall along the political spectrum, if you have a sense that there was a better time and things used to be a little more polite, a little more fair, and a little more balanced, you are mostly right. Mostly. In a nutshell, here's what the Fairness Doctrine is as told by Stephen Simmons. Quote, the Fairness Doctrine, 
is the name given to two requirements applied by the Federal Communications Commission to radio and television broadcasters throughout the United States. The first, called the Part 1 requirement, demands that broadcast licensees devote a reasonable amount of their programming to controversial issues of public importance. The second, called Part 2, requires that when such issues are presented, contrasting views on them be aired, end quote. We should note that the doctrine itself wasn't specifically approved by Congress until 1959, kicking off a wave of litigation, complaints, challenges to both broadcasters by special interest groups and the doctrine itself by broadcasters. From the inception of the FCC until this point, it was more of a guideline and a work in progress as broadcast technology was undergoing a revolution and the government trailed behind attempting to maintain order and control of content to some degree, to whatever degree it could. So the FCC won't let me be, or let me be me, so let me see. In fact, the debate over spectrum and control of the airwaves began before 1934, starting with the radios aboard ships at sea in the early 1900s. Again, Simmons. Quote, in 1920, there were but three radio stations in the country broadcasting regularly. By late 1924, the number of broadcasting stations had risen to 578. By 1927, there were two national networks with a total of 64 affiliated stations providing regular network service from coast to coast, end quote. So I think we can draw some parallels between the period in the 1920s through the 50s and the more recent history of the Internet. Both eras saw complete transformations in communications and society as a result, and both eras witnessed a government quick to license spectrum to private interests and slow to regulate the growth and to enforce any standards. The first person to try and get their arms around this new industry was actually Secretary of Commerce and future President Herbert Hoover. Hoover would battle other agencies and broadcasters throughout both the Coolidge and Harding administrations and eventually he hammered out something called the 1927 Radio Act, in many ways the precursor to the eventual Telecommunications Act of 1934 that established the FCC and the guidelines for broadcasting that would endure for more than 30 years. What happened then? Did Ronald Reagan tear it apart, shit all over it, and set it on fire? Oh, cool. So no spoiler alert or anything? You're just skipping to the next episode, are we? I bet Clinton did something shitty too. What the actual fuck is with you two today? Anyway, something that Hoover said addressing a conference endured so strongly as a sentiment that it nearly stood as a legal precedent. He said, quote, We hear a great deal about freedom of the air, but there are two parties to freedom of the air and to freedom of speech for that matter. Certainly in radio, I believe in freedom for the listener. Freedom cannot mean a license to every person or corporation who wishes to broadcast his name or his wares and thus monopolize the listener's set, end quote. As Simmons writes, the national radio conferences and other developments during the 1920s had highlighted some of the concerns that would lead to implementation of the Fairness Doctrine. Critical among these were scarcity of the airwave resource, the fear of powerful private entities utilizing their frequencies to further their own partisan and or materialistic ends, the interest of the public in receiving information, and the need to treat the ether as a public resource, end quote. So this is a critical point, right? This idea of scarcity, because you know when that term comes into play that a whole bunch of capitalists and economists are going to scramble to get a hold of whatever it is, whether it's oil or broadband, scarcity means supply and demand determine one's ability to generate profit. Whoever controls the supply, in this case the information, in a scarce environment, ultimately has control over pricing or value, assuming such information is in high demand. That's why Spectrum was treated differently than print media. The real reason for the establishment of the FCC wasn't actually the concern over private entities using radio frequencies or later television to their advantage though that was certainly a concern among fair-minded and more progressive members of Congress. But it was actually because prior to 1934, the airwaves were the Wild West. If you had the wherewithal to figure out how to transmit on a certain frequency, there was literally nothing stopping you from doing so. So over a matter of just a few short years, radio broadcasts were popping up all over the country, and then they began to overlap. Basically, if you had a radio and tuned it to 8.80 a.m., there was a chance that you only heard static in certain markets because so many people were competing for that frequency. 
Here's the easiest way to think about it. Radio waves, AM in particular, travel continuously around the Earth. So if there are only two broadcasts on 880 AM, let's say one in New York and the other in California, they'll carry until they essentially block one another somewhere in the middle of the country. In fact, in the early days, it wasn't uncommon to travel across half the country while listening to a single radio station. For what it's worth, FM is a little different. It's a more precise, narrow, and intense frequency. So like it has the ability to pierce walls and terrain, whereas rain can interrupt AM because it's so wide and so thin. Wow, you're nerding out on this. It's almost like you worked in radio or something. What? That's crazy talk. What could be broadcast? Who could broadcast? Decency standards, fairness, balance, all of these things were being contemplated, but it took a long time to actually establish firm guidelines. So in the meantime, the government formed the FCC to deal with the allocation of spectrum first and foremost. Now, with respect to content, there were a few moving parts that proved tricky and frankly still do. What was clear from the outset, though, was that the FCC wasn't going to award licenses to anyone with a clear, one-sided agenda. Of course, that too carries some baggage, as you can imagine. Here's an example of tension with the First Amendment that the FCC kind of brushed aside. And you can have feelings about this one way or another. The point is to illustrate that their prevailing sentiment at the time was that certain levels of censorship did not conflict with the First Amendment, largely because of this idea of scarcity. Scarcity removed the argument of complete freedom. Ubiquity, on the other hand, allowed for it. Here's the example. Quote, in 1938, in Young People's Association, the FCC faced an applicant who proposed to use its station primarily to preach the fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. The FCC declared that in light of airwave scarcity, it, quote, had accordingly considered that interests of the listening public are paramount to the interests of the individual applicant in determining whether the public interest would be best served by granting an application. A one-sided presentation of the viewpoint was simply unacceptable, end quote. So as we mentioned, the Fairness Doctrine itself did not formally appear until 1959. But between 49 and 59, it was drafted over and over to account for the growing medium of television and the influence that it was quickly gaining. Over time, questions would arise to challenge the nature of content covered by the Doctrine. There was a case involving a corporation, for example, that was buying time to promote Alaskan oil development. Cases involving military recruitment, advertisements promoting lethal gasoline additives. Then there was the fact that any regulatory attempts still didn't cover broadcasting counterparts in print journalism. So all told, it added layers of confusion as to what was covered by the doctrine, whether the commission had any enforcement powers over these developing challenges, and whether it would extend to new areas of spectrum that would soon be unleashed on the world. Areas like, I don't know, the World Wide Motherfucking Web. I gotta say, as a resource, the Simmons book, even as far back as 1978, does an outstanding job framing the complications surrounding a commission that took its standards from other industries and tried to apply them to a free market doctrine of scarcity with nebulous frameworks like fairness, best efforts, public interest, and other unspecified rules in a world moving so quickly it never had a shot to realistically rein in the growth of disinformation, misinformation, and special interest groups. Here's an excellent passage that further highlights just how tricky this whole process really is and always has been. Quote, At first glance, the doctrine sounds appealing. Broadcasters are lucky enough to be given the privilege, by government fiat, to use a scarce airwave frequency to the exclusion of others. Just who is going to determine whether a broadcast is being fair? What controversial issues of public importance must a broadcaster cover in its programming? What is a reasonable balance between contrasting views on issues? How are groups to be guaranteed an opportunity to speak their views over the airwaves? Is there any workable formula applicable to issues and programming? If the government is to answer questions such as these, is this an appropriate role for government to even play? In a country that values a free press, do not broadcast journalists have some First Amendment rights to determine the content of their public use programming, inhibit broadcasters from doing such programming? Does not government intervention itself create the potential information distortion it is supposed to prevent? Are not the people better off, then, in a system that minimized government intervention in the broadcast media? What? How? Why? 
I have so many questions! Chapter 3. Fairness in the Eye of the Withholder To further illustrate how messy this concept is, I want to play a couple of clips because it's interesting to see who's on what side of the issue and when. Here's an asshat and religious zealot during the Eisenhower years decrying the death of free speech at the hands of the FCC because it required equal time for groups promoting anything in opposition to some vague notion of patriotism or states' rights, which we all know is the ultimate dog whistle on the right. From Washington, D.C., the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, issued an edict to radio and television stations that if they allowed the controversial subjects of Americanism, anti-communism, or states' rights to be discussed on their stations, they would be required to give equal time free of charge to anyone wishing to present an opposite view. Can you imagine this happening in a free country? So one would think that this stance wholly aligns with the broadcast community, right? After all, why would major broadcast corporations elect to be restricted by the government in any fashion over what they show on television or say on the radio? Don't get me wrong, that perspective was shared among many broadcasters and still is today. But here's a clip of Thomas Goodgame, hey, Goodgame. of NBC Westinghouse offering a congressional testimony in defense of the doctrine in 1987, the year that it was ultimately eliminated by the Reagan administration. Uh, I think that the fairness doctrine articulates what we as broadcasters must do in order to hold a license. And that the basic issue is that we must be fair, that we must provide a forum. We are not a newspaper. We are not a magazine. We are a spectrum space allocated by the federal government. In exchange for that, I don't think that we as broadcasters have the right to go on and express our own views are the views of an individual party, our individual organization, individual special interest group, without providing the opportunity for others to have that same uh, right on I the air. Understand. Are you saying that you would do that with or without the fairness doctrine? I mean, well, we, yes, we would. But, other but I, 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 think, I think that there is a tendency down the road to uh, later or today uh, for people not to do that. Very interesting. Now remember, a major conservative talking point was not just the First Amendment, but that the FCC ownership rules inhibited competition. Under their free market theory, loosening restrictions on ownership of licenses would unleash competition in the marketplace of enterprise and ideas, and that the resulting competition would therefore engender a culture of diversity among owners and perspectives. Of course, that didn't happen. And we'll get more into the effects of deregulation in the next FCC episode. But where the fairness doctrine is concerned, there's clear evidence that the opposite effect ultimately came to fruition. Here's then-presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich sparring politely with Lou Dobbs in 2007 over this very issue. As you know, there is a school of thought that the fairness doctrine, uh, which of course uh, hasn't been around now for some 20 years, uh, was stifling uh, and therefore also uh, contravening the First Amendment, uh, free speech. How do you respond to those who would charge that? Well, there's been some real changes in media in the last uh, 20 years since we've seen the fairness doctrine go. We've seen 50 large media companies suddenly shrink to six. And so this idea of uninhibited uh, exchange of, market, of ideas in the marketplace needs to be looked at in the era of media consolidation. Of course, you can make the case that eliminating the doctrine and loosening ownership regulations expanded the field of play and invited more participants in the discussion from the left and the right. This is a critical point because there were many who felt that the fairness doctrine actually had a chilling effect on free speech because broadcasters were afraid of running afoul of FCC guidelines. Therefore, it was easier to eliminate conflict than lean into it. Nah, that's a compelling argument that bears actually no resemblance to lived experience, however. The elimination of the doctrine allowed for the rise of unchallenged thought and opinion journalism, most associated with the rise of Rush Limbaugh. Here's scumbag loofah-scrubbing cheat-whore bitch Bill O'Reilly accurately portraying the end of the Fairness Doctrine and the rise of conservative talk radio star Rush Limbaugh. So in 1960, there were only two talk stations in the United States. Two. All right. Um, by 1995, there were 1,200. Once talk radio started, the Fairness Doctrine went out the window. 
So Rush Limbaugh, for example, he began uh, in the early 90s. By 94, he had 20 million Americans tuning in to hear a conservative point of view. There was no balance. It was Mr. Limbaugh's show, and for three hours, he espoused conservative tenets. And the government didn't bother him. Of course, O'Reilly paints this as a positive development, because after this, he goes on to say that if anyone presented a problem with respect to one-sided journalism, it was Dan Rather and his leftist ideology. So this, again, is a popular talking point among conservatives who continue to cast all media as liberal, despite clear evidence to the contrary, especially where broadcast is concerned. Conservative media is the mainstream today because corporations consumed all competing outlets amid the deregulatory frenzy of the 1990s. Thanks, Bill Clinton. And it must be said that the one person who not only foresaw all of this coming, but specifically advocated for it, was Nixon and Reagan advisor Roger Ailes. Yes, the founder of the Fox News empire with Rupert Murdoch. In his book, Free the Press, by veteran reporter Brian Karam, he details the plan behind the combined actions of deregulation and killing the fairness doctrine. Here's Karam, quote, Ailes had immediate success in getting politicians that he supported elected. But there were two key obstacles that kept Ailes from realizing his dream for media domination. The fairness doctrine and rules governing media ownership were huge obstacles. The fairness doctrine dictated that any story of controversy carried with it the need for contrary and competing coverage. There were no real teeth to the doctrine and few prescribed remedies other than losing a broadcast license, a fate no major network ever suffered. Far from a perfect plan to deal with providing equal time, what the fairness doctrine did was effectively build a philosophical buffer into the news. News organizations could not play exclusively in one philosophical or political lane. The fairness doctrine worked because it got broadcasters into the habit of providing competing ideas. Ailes, as former FCC Chairman Minow pointed out, didn't want that. He wanted to dominate the airwaves with companies that thought like he did. The Fairness Doctrine hobbled that idea, but so did a large number of diverse companies owning broadcast and print media outlets." End quote. Now, according to the Congressional Quarterly, quote, the Reagan administration's deregulation drive in television was led by communications lawyer Mark Fowler. Remember that name. He served as FCC chairman from 81 until 87, arguing that television was merely a toaster with pictures. Fowler sought to make the broadcasting industry as free from government control as the appliance industry and the print media. In the space of a few years, the commission abolished limits on what stations could show, such as the number of commercials, as well as requirements on what they had to broadcast, such as news coverage. In addition, relatively liberal FCC policies allowed a substantial increase in the amount of sexually oriented material being broadcast. As Karam concludes, quote, as a final thumbing of his nose when Fowler left the FCC, he claimed that he wished he could close it for good. Free market forces and competitive forces are better able to serve the public and police companies than the government, Fowler claimed. Former FCC chairman Newton Minow, on the other hand, said Fowler was a key architect of the one-sided media we have today, end quote. Chapter 4. Bring it home, Max. All right. So I wanted to begin this deep dive into media and communications with a discussion surrounding the Fairness Doctrine, because for a lot of people, it seems like a simple fix. Put it back. Require equal time, and everything will be a little bit better. But like most of the FCC's history, this horse has left the barn. In fact, it finished the race. It's back in the paddock, and it's sleeping. This shit is over. First off, aside from a handful of cases over several decades, the doctrine was toothless. It operated as more of a suggestion. But prior to deregulation, it can be said that most of the big outlets operated on some version of the honor system. They offered public affairs programming, ensured that differing opinions were heard. But this also ignores periods like the 40s and 50s, when socialists were kept out of the national discussion and refused airtime. The situation worsens along race and gender lines, as most of the big companies who held themselves out as principled broadcasters had boardrooms, editorial boards, and reporter bullpens filled with white men. And of course, this says nothing about the predominantly patriarchal control over newspapers. Now, it might sound like I'm somehow opposed to the doctrine or the concept of equal time. I'm really not. 
and the patriarchal control of media throughout our history is and always was bigger than the FCC. In fact, if not for the FCC, there would be no minority interests in broadcasting. This is something they took very seriously, even if it only slightly moved the needle. No, patriarchal control over information is endemic to the social and economic fabric of this country, and it's not something the FCC was ever going to influence or change in a meaningful way. When we covered deregulation under Telecom 96 through the end of net neutrality in a separate episode, we'll tap into some of the economic decisions that were heavily influenced by the work of Ronald Coase and his cohorts at the Chicago School. It's a very important part of the discussion. But the point here is to illustrate the complexity surrounding the relationship between government, the First Amendment, corporate interests, as well as new and old technologies. Remember that the Fairness Doctrine was specific to the scarcity of broadcast licenses and did not apply to newspapers. Likewise, when the Internet was born, the government was presented with a challenge that is equally as messy. Should the Internet be regulated? Is it a utility, a right? covered under the First Amendment, or is it a pipeline of information no different than a radio transmitter or a printing press? Is Facebook a media outlet? Are they the arbiter of content and what is fair? Is Twitter, the New York Times, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, Alex Jones? The Fairness Doctrine rightly touches upon the most important and yet most difficult economic and social concepts of the Republic, and nothing makes sense at face value. Consider this. The free market ideologues who protest monopolies pushed to deregulate media resulting in the near monopoly of media. A government agency that serves as the arbiter of fairness is by definition infringing upon its own drafted First Amendment right to freedom of speech. Then again, the provision of free speech was only contemplated when printing and yelling were the only forms of known communication. Was it fair to regulate behavior of broadcasters but not publishers? Why are commercials covered under free speech? Or are they? As it was in our BlackRock episode, we now have corporations that are involved deeply in every part of this discussion and yet somehow operate with impunity on the fringes of it. BlackRock isn't a bank. It just owns them. It's not an investment bank, but it owns them as well. Facebook isn't a media outlet, but it controls the flow of information from them. Google isn't a publisher, but it controls what you see. Cable companies aren't regulated as utilities as the phone companies once were, but now most of us get our home telephony from them. Censorship, free speech, free market, antitrust, over-the-air spectrum, wireless and broadband, scarcity versus open internet, utility, public benefit, natural rights. We look to the wisdom of Adam Smith or even Milton Friedman. We rely on anachronistic theories and models. We expect self-governance, from conglomerates. The reality is we cannot regulate fairness or even define it for that matter, especially today because we live in a paradigm that bears zero resemblance to the circumstances of our founding and what interests they were trying to protect. Like I said, very unsatisfying, but there are answers. Answers that cannot be found in guidelines and recommendations, doctrines or expressions of faith around some loose interpretation of fairness and equal time. A combination of re-regulation and antitrust measures, proper categorization of certain technologies as utilities for the public good, and a broad set of measures designed to beat our corporate masters into submission are all required to restore balance to the media universe and actually improve upon the false notion of fairness that pervaded when the old patriarchal system prevailed, as opposed to the current patriarchal system, of course. A fairness doctrine is only necessary in an unfair society and economy. The so-called free market produces the exact opposite of what it implies. So work backwards. A less free market creates more free competition. A less free market allows for more free speech. A less free market frees us from corporate tyranny. Here endeth the primer on fairness.
It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, and fuckers, welcome into post-show musings. I'm here solo at this moment. I was with 99 earlier today. My recording got a little bit delayed, so she had to boogie because she's actually going to a live performance of her favorite podcast. And yes, it is not this. And I'm okay with that. We all have our guilty pleasures. And she's been dedicated to this other podcast for many, many, many years. So we'll find out next week, I guess, in show notes how the show was. But for now, let me just tell you that the book love for this week is Stephen J. Simmons, The Fairness Doctrine in the Media. What an unbelievable resource this was. Simmons really doesn't draw many conclusions except to say that, yeah, the doctrine is not the answer because we've got bigger issues. And that's really what I was trying to convey through this, to set the table to understand the issues that are going to be presented to us in this modern era and continue to be, especially with the end of net neutrality after the Obama administration, uh, under Trump, that is. And, you know, what happens with the digital divide? the economy, the future of education, the future of healthcare as everything moves online. Really fascinating shit that I felt we couldn't tackle effectively until we laid the groundwork with what it is the FCC is supposed to do. Uh, then we have Brian J. Karam, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. The foreword in that book is actually by Sam Donaldson, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, Karam is kind of an establishment reporter, so, uh, and I'm not shitting on the book. I think it's actually, uh, there's some really good information and it shows, I guess it shows how the game has even changed for the institutional players. He actually has an interesting anecdote in the, I think it was somewhere near the beginning of the book where he talks about being in the White House press corps as a kid and learning from Sam Donaldson and Helen Thomas and Dan Rather and all the people that used to mill about in the White House that I watched growing up, obviously, to today where he said, smart young reporters, all, you know, doing as good of work that, as they can possibly do, but totally lacking in historical context. And he brought up a question that was posed to Trump in one of his very few instances in meeting with the press in the, in the, in the briefing room. And somebody had brought something up about posse commentators. And Trump dismissed it out of hand, probably didn't know what it was, what have you. And nobody wanted to talk about it. And they were milling about afterwards. And he was saying, oh, can you believe that? that they're going to do this and it's going to upend the, the whole theory of posse commentators. And none of the reporters in the room had any idea what he was talking about. And he was like, holy shit, everything has changed. All the institutional knowledge and historical context has gone out of the establishment players. And so that was the sea change in his world. We've all recognized a bigger sea change, obviously. And I don't necessarily want to say that the, the White House... Uh, correspondents are the be-all, end-all, because I, I still think that they've always enjoyed way too cozy of a relationship with the establishment. Uh, but it is interesting. He's a good reporter, so it's really interesting to see from his perspective how even that has changed. I had this, uh, it wound up on the cutting room floor. It's going to work its way into the next episode, but I'm going to reference uh, Ken Aletta's book, Backstory Inside the Business of News. We'd actually, I think, leveraged that in the Murdoch episode as well. So we're bringing that one back. And we're going to talk about The Illusion of Free Markets, Punishment, and the Myth of Natural Order by Bernard Harcourt again in the next episode, but I had teased it today talking about the Coase Theorem, uh, but we're going to rely on the, the, the good Professor Harcourt for that as well. So that is it for now. I hope Knudsen, among others who have asked for this episode, uh, Knudsen, Tristan, uh, off the top of my head, a bunch of others that have asked for an, an unfucking of the FCC and many who have brought up the fairness doctrine over time to talk about what they believe has really changed in the media. I hope this illuminates some things. I had a lot of fun obviously putting it together because uh, having been in the publishing industry and as I uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek alluded to, uh, spent some time in, in broadcast industry prior to getting into uh, publishing and, and journalism. So it's interesting to see how much I even took for granted throughout my career and to get a historical perspective on, on on stuff that was so voluntary. That's, I think, the piece that really got to me on Fuckers is that, you know, I lived in the broadcast arena for enough years and then, you know, was obviously aware of what was happening with net neutrality as I got into publishing and then digital publishing after that. 
and understood the FCC, I think, to have more leverage and teeth than it did or ever did for that matter. The fairness doctrine and scarcity, the idea that there were a handful of licenses that with the ultimate threat that those licenses could be taken away, I can tell you firsthand, when you had a vast number of individual operators owner operators with licenses in individual markets before public entities and conglomerates took it over, that those individual operators, despite it rarely, if ever happening, did operate under a sense of both fear and obligation to the license. They knew that this was not something they had created. It is something that they were awarded and they took it very seriously. And when you have, when this is your lifeblood, and you only have one or three or five when there's the rules started to change, you couldn't afford to lose that license. And so to the extent that through fear, the FCC did kind of hold over them the ability to take that license, that did create a better ethical standard in terms of equal time and in more of an effort towards public benefit programming. Reagan did away with all of that. Clinton sealed the deal by deregulating the entire industry, lifting the caps and putting us in the situation we are today where we have five or six companies that literally control 90% of the media. Now build on the other themes that we've, that we've covered. Now you've got a company like BlackRock that owns a significant stake in all of those corporations and a lot of the burgeoning technologies and corporations that control the flow of information. It is such a complicated thing that I felt it, it deserved its own unfucking to show how it's not as simple as a doctrine. And we can't place our faith in words. We're going to have to go back to the beginning and look at hardcore regulations that essentially start to seal off this notion of free markets and neoliberalism. Everything comes back in order to this idea that the markets know better than government where public utility and things that affect us all and, and move society are concerned. So all good stuff. I appreciate you hanging in there. I hope you enjoyed this one. We have some outrageously cool shit coming up. Don't forget, we are in our fall trifecta razor period. Funds, friends, and hell. For hell raising, we encourage you to go over to Mandela Barnes' social media accounts over in Wisconsin and support them. Start sharing what they're posting out of their team ask some questions, make sure you make yourself known on their on their social pages and just check in and say, hey, UNFTR sent me here to help. Distribute their information. Tell your friends that you are in support of them. If you know anybody in the great state of Wisconsin, tell them that Mandela Barnes is your candidate to run against one of the worst serving senators that we've ever seen. Not going to say him even by name because we're not going to draw attention to the competition, even though everybody knows who it is. And then over in Pennsylvania's 12th, congressional district. There's a, a battle on. Summer Lee made it through the gauntlet of dark money and pack challenges from her own party to uh, make sure she didn't prevail. And yet she did. Nevertheless, she persisted and she won her primary and we're backing Summer Lee. So make yourselves known to Summer Lee as well. That's our hell raising period for the fall. The fundraising period is to get us up to 420 members by the end of the year, at which point we'll release a legalization, marijuana legalization episode in honor of 420. It's also a way to make sure that we can guarantee our financial independence and never be bought. Not like we would ever be bought. It's just a way of guaranteeing our independence and to make sure that we can keep doing this for many years to come together. And friend raising, if you have somebody that has not yet listened to the show and you introduce them to us, have them reach out to us and say, hey, newbie fucker here, introduced by so-and-so, would love a shout out on the show. Thanks for all you do. Something like that. So we're calling out newbie fuckers in show notes and the people who sponsored them and invited them over so that we can raise more friends, which will help us raise more funds, which all contribute to us raising more hell. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Many faces. Who are you? I'm many faces with the power to change from men to robot to monster. Oh, no. In specially marked packages, many faces comes with five extra weapons. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. 
Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Free Speech and distributed by Shut the Fuck Up. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Going to ignore all the rest of it because all you have to do because of the great and powerful 99 is go to UNFTR.com and you can find links to all of our shit like merchandise. You want hats? You want t-shirts? We got them. They're over there. Go to UNFTR.com. Go fucking buy a few. Go buy 10. Go buy 30. Who gives a shit? Wear it all over town. Unfuck the Republic. It is what it is. Right? You can find a link to our Substack. We're not going to be on Substack forever. But for now, we're going to be on Substack. It's always free. We don't gate any of our content. If you're new here, you'll hear us say this almost every time. We don't gate our content. That's why we rely on members to help us finance the show because there's no other hidden channel that you go to and you got to pay to access it. We're just all out there, okay? So you can find links to all of our essays. You can search all the episodes one by one and look at all of our sources and resources. Sourcing is extremely important to us. It's all available under the episodes tab on the website. You can find it all, 99 built it all. You can find links to our native roasted coffee partnership with the people on Puspatuck Reservation, the Unkichog people on Puspatuck. They brew the best fucking coffee in the world. They brew special blends for us. Unfuck your morning, unfuck your afternoon, a decaffeinated unfucking, and Mellow Maynard, my personal favorite. Mellow Maynard, named, of course, for John Maynard Keynes, one of our heroes on this show. So buy some Mellow Maynard, or again, buy 50 and send it to all of your friends and invite them to listen to the show. Do whatever you want to do, or don't. Just listen. You don't have to contribute anything. But if you did want to contribute, you can become a member by going to buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR, or again, just go to UNFTR.com and click on the membership tab. It's all right fucking there in front of you. A whole universe curated by the master of that universe. She doesn't let me say master anymore. By the, huh, by the, the maestro, I guess, of that universe. The Great and Powerful 99. We'll see you in show notes, and we have a couple of really cool episodes coming up, and then in a few weeks, we'll revisit the second part of the FCC. Until then, much love. Mandela Barnes for Senate. Summer Lee for Congress. We'll catch you next week. And the winner of the Joe Rogan Meet and Great Sweepstakes is 99! 